Welcome back to the program. A magical cave, a piece of cheese, a 260-pound man, and a modern journey into a time past, and a new understanding of food and life. These are just a few elements of Michael Paternetti's brilliant new literary work of nonfiction, The Telling Room. Beginning in 1991 in a famed deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's a story that, like Robert Louis Stevenson's definition of wine as bottled poetry, resonates with the history and passion that food carries with it. Michael Paternetti is the New York Times best-selling author of Driving Mr. Albert. His writing has appeared in many magazines, including the New York Times, National Geographic, Harper's, Outside, and Esquire. He's been nominated eight times for the National Magazine Award, and it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Paternetti here to talk about The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese, Michael Pedernetti, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Delight to have you here. This story begins in a pretty famous deli, a food mecca in Ann Arbor, Michigan, while you were a graduate student. Tell us about it. Yeah, I was well, I was working at Zingerman's uh, Delicatessen in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, for those who don't know Zingerman's, it does, uh, I think today it does about $45 million in just um, mail order business. But it, it is... Um, it is just a foodie mecca, and one of the owners, Ari Weinzweig, uh, back even in the old days before we became obsessed with food and, and the story um, behind our food, uh, he traveled the world, and he would go out and find items to bring back to the deli, and he would collect stories and, and old recipes, and um, he was he was one of those early uh, progenitors of this, this uh, sort of food movement that is now so familiar to us. Um, and in his travels, he uh, he discovered the Spanish cheese called Paramo de Guzman, which was made in a tiny village in um, Castile, in north-central Spain, about two and a half hours north of Madrid, up on the high highlands there called the Meseta, um, a real rugged part of the country, a lot of vineyards and sunflower fields up there. And... Um, and this cheese was made by a farmer in the village. The village had 80 people in it. And the farmer's name was Ambrosio Molinas. And he made the cheese from an old family recipe. He milked his sheep and then brought the milk to a little stable where he he uh, stirred, stirred the milk over fire and just handmade this cheese lovingly and with care. And uh, then took it up to a family cave nearby where he would age it for a year. This story was was documented in this newsletter that Zingerman's had, which really captured the heart of all of these kind of exotic foods that he had. Exactly. There. Yeah, that newsletter was fantastic. And and I was a grad student in Ann Arbor uh, in 1991 um, studying, to, uh, studying fiction. I was writing fiction in the MFA program there. And I was looking to make a little extra money, and I was allowed to proofread Ari's newsletter. And there was this one entry that was about four paragraphs long that told the story of the cheese and ambrosio. And uh, it seemed like the beginning of a fairy tale because, I mean, just even his name alone was so completely evocative. But I just had visions of this uh, cave where this cheese sat for a year. And uh, after it had aged, he would he would drench it in olive oil, and then um, and then put it in a very sort of idiosyncratic white tin, 
that um, were, you know, a couple of stamps from different agricultural fairs and, and cheese fairs where the where the cheese had won um, various medals. And so it just had this sort of incredible exoticism, uh, but it also stood for this for this slow food way of, of making things really before uh, the slow food movement had, had caught hold. And there was something very quixotic in, in the whole uh, quest to make a, a perfect cheese like this. And at the time, too, I, I remember in the newsletter, um, Ari said, that this would be this was uh, the most expensive cheese that they'd ever sold, and I think his quote was, "It just makes me nervous to even put it on on the counter." Um, but he described it as rich uh, and dense and intense at the time, and because I had no money, um, I wasn't able to buy a tin of this cheese. You can just cut off a, a little slice of it and buy, you know, an eighth of a pound. You had to you had to buy the tin. Um, and so I, I ripped out the entry and I carried it with me uh, for many years until about 10, just under 10 years later, I, as a magazine writer, went back to Spain to um, to profile the chef Ferran Adria for Esquire magazine. And Ferran was uh, very interested in sort of making futuristic food and redefining food as we knew it. And, and there was a Sunday, an off Sunday. This was in the year 2000. And on that off Sunday, my buddy Carlos, who was there to help translate, and I went up to Castel, uh, to this little village, to try this cheese. And when we arrived, we found Ambrosio in his family cave. And he proceeded to tell us a remarkable story. Uh, but the... But the punchline for me was that he no longer made the cheese, that in fact uh, he'd had it stolen, he said, by his best friend, a man by the name of Julian. Um, and then he said that he was plotting to kill Julian. So we we seemingly walked into the middle of a, of a murder plot, among other things. Um, but I should say the cheese, you know, the rise of the cheese was an incredible story in and of itself. And it was... Uh, handed from village to village as Ambrosio first made it and, and traveled all the way to Madrid where the king and queen of Spain allegedly tried it. And then it was served to the British royal family. It was given to Ronald Reagan and Frank Sinatra and Fidel Castro tried to buy all the cheese that Ambrosio had. So this cheese, from this little stable in Guzman with a population of 80 people, sort of took the world by storm in its own little way. And uh, and Ambrosio is such a huge uh, force of nature, such an incredible character, such a, an amazing storyteller. On that first day in this little room above the cave called the Telling Room, where people gather to eat and drink and tell stories um, in the village, he told uh, the story, too, of how he had poured all of his own love and purity into this cheese, that the, that the cheese stood for so much more than what it actually was, that it, it was incredibly symbolic. And uh, I was just completely enraptured. He was this amazing, as you say, 260-pound force of nature telling you this story for, for over eight hours in a village that was a magical realism kind of village. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, the first time... I came to the village uh, 
we, Carlos and I drove straight through it. Uh, it was about 200 yards uh, of road that wiggled through the village, and then you were out onto the um, uh, Paramo up above the village. Um, so if you literally, if you blinked, you missed the village. Uh, but on that first village, we went looking for Ambrosio. There was no plan to meet him. He said we would just find him. Uh, we were walking around, and we met a group of older um, citizens of Guzman, and they were sitting in front of their cave, in front of their telling room, and they were drinking wine from a, a paron, which is a sort of a decanter with a spout. So you hold the paron up in the air, and you tilt it, and the wine arcs up into your mouth uh, if you have good aim, and if you don't, <laughs> you end up wearing most of it, um, and uh, and they immediately offered uh, us some wine from the Paron. So when I when we actually got to Ambrosio, who was a few caves away, um, I sort of looked like I'd been shot. You know, I was covered in red wine. <laughs> and um, and uh, it was the beginning of this sort of welcoming that lasted for 13 years in Guzman. And there were, there were as many um, citizens as there were in the town. There were stories. There was a story of Manuel, who everybody believed could fly and flew one night um, for for mysterious reasons that eventually I found out. And um, and there was just a litany of these kinds of stories that didn't seem real at first, but you, you realized uh, after hearing the stories told and retold that everybody there believed them. Talk a little bit about the contrast between what you had gone to Spain for to do this interview with the chef who was, as you say, the future of food, very cutting edge, and spending time with Ambrosio, on the other hand, who represented the past, represented memory in so many ways. Well, Ferran Adria's restaurant, El Bouilly, was uh, at the vanguard of this this movement, and it was it was food served at the digital speed of our lives. It, you know, if you sat down for a meal at El Bouilly, it could, la- it could last, you know, three or four hours, uh, and you might see 30 plates come and go, um, and every dish was its own strange entity. It was foams and jellies and um, confusions and things that you thought were going to taste salty that tasted sweet, and uh, he was working with chemists and all sorts of, of different people in different fields to, to figure out how to create uh, these illusions. Um, so there was a certain amount of, of magic to it, really. And then to go back in time to a place like Guzman, where time doesn't sort of exist as we know it today. It's Everything moves very slowly, if not backwards. And to go into Ambrosio's telling room and to sit at a wood plank table on this cramped, cozy space and be served homemade chorizo and homemade wine, um, to have a have a piece of cheese served um, or lomo, whatever it was that got put on the table, olives that were, were taken um, from the field and, and uh, all of those things, all of that um, camaraderie that surrounds food. Uh, was very intoxicating, and it represented, for me at least, um, a respite from the world as I knew it, this sort of modern world, this world in which we actually do consume food without thinking 
um, too much about it when we're in a hurry. Uh, we don't often sit and tell stories over our meals. We um, are called in all sorts of different directions. And so what, hap- what happened in the telling room felt sort of um, body and sacred and and uh, completely revelatory to me. And so I think I think it wouldn't have felt quite as dramatic if I hadn't been doing that profile of Ferran, if I hadn't been so wrapped up in this sort of Willy Wonka future of food, um, the, the trip to Guzman might have meant less or maybe it would have struck me uh, with a little less power. But, but as it did on that one Sunday in August in the year 2000, I was, I was really carried away and I wanted to know the secrets of that place. I wanted to know the secrets of living like that. I wanted to know the secrets of going out and picking those grapes and making that wine. And I wanted to know the secrets of how he'd made the cheese and how he'd lost it and how he'd fallen into, um, by all accounts, this deep, somewhat crazy depression in which he now was contemplating killing his best friend. There is this phrase that you talk about with respect to this link to the past, the idea of the disability of memory. Talk about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that was something that Ambrosio mentioned to me, and he was talking very specifically about how the tastes of the old world were being lost, how food had become homogenized and globalized, and how we were slaves to the right proportions of sugar and salt and uh, processed meats and huge industrial poultry farms. Um, and what he stood for and what he was trying to recover was this old way of eating, that you would raise your chickens um, in the yard, that the chickens would live for a year and a half instead of, 120 days, um, they would they would be a part of your world. And in Ambrosio's case, he would talk to them. He would he he talked to his cheese. He talked to his animals. Um, he had he had, was in this conversation with the natural world in a way that might sound a little crazy to us, but when you're there in that context, was not at all. And in fact, it made me think the rest of the world was a little crazy for not. Um, living like him. So I think this idea that Ambrosio had when he referred to the disability of memory was really um, this idea about memory and, and this loss of memory, this erasure of of our historical roots um, and our own stories uh, as the world became more and more sucked into this sort of digital avant-garde. And so Ambrosio just really believed in eating the old way and tasting the old way and telling stories the old way. Um, and I really fell under um, his sway there. And I, bec- I became, you know, two of the mind uh, that we did suffer from this disability um, and that we needed in our own way to recover uh, memories. And so I was, I was driven deeper into his world and became more implicated in his plot even. Um, in ways that I just never expected. In some ways, as he talked about this, as you were more drawn into it, as as it evolved this idea of the cheese somehow compressing time, there is a sense that one comes away with that Ambrosio was also a marketing genius in his own way. <laughs> he, he 
you know, uh, he is. <laughs> you are exactly right. He is so authentically himself, and yet he's by turns absolutely grandiose and persuasive and um, scatological and very funny and charming and can be overbearing. And uh, he's he is a big person, uh, sort of P.T. Barnum of cheese, I would say. And he he did an amazing job telling the story of his cheese, but he didn't do um, those things that you need to do when you're nurturing a product and um, expanding and finding other markets. He, he was not a business person at all. He was sort of a, the poet of the Meseta, but when it came to numbers and um, putting his name to contracts, he made he made some mistakes. And, and along the way, he claimed that Julian, who was he said handling all of the business affairs, uh, put a contract in front of him that he signed without reading, of course, um, because an old Castilian takes you at your word and uh, would never think that you might betray him. Um, he signed this contract that signed away. Um, his company, this cheese company, and his rights to the cheese. And he was very serious about wanting to kill Julian, even to the point of, of pulling out these military manuals and figuring out whether he needed a rope and a knife. And <laughs> and, and he shared all of this with you. It it was very real. And I the first time um, he painted one of these plots for me, um, I on that first visit, I remember we Carlos and I left the village some somewhere around two AM and, and we were driving down the hill from Guzman. Guzman sits on this, this hill above the Meseta. And I basically felt my mind had exploded. Um and I turned to Carlos and I was like, Are we now accomplices? Like what does this mean? It was so vivid, you know, the the plot that he laid out. Um and in the years to come, he would he would go back to that plot, and it seemed very active in some ways. Um, and there were some other plots that he had in mind, too. And uh, over time, what I began to realize, there was a lot of tension around this, but also every time he told one of these stories about how he was going to kill Julian, he was, in fact, killing him in his mind, that there was this sort of uh, repetition of murder that, that accompanied these stories, um, and in some ways that was liberating to him too. Um, so he could contemplate the act, uh, but by describing it, he was committing it, uh, even though he really wasn't. And at a certain point, you decide to move yourself and your family to this village of Guzman. Yeah, and I think that was part of the that's that that part of it was the very American part for me was that the book became more than just a plot line, uh just a murder story or or you know, a story that that was going to eventually conclude with murder or not. Um for me there was something very spiritual uh there to be found and there was some lack that I felt I think in my sort of deadline crazy life. Uh, we were starting a young family, um, you know, just I felt like I was always on planes, uh, on assignment, and and then we would 
go to this place, Guzman, and everything slowed down, and we had time for each other, we had time for meals, and I I thought that that made very good sense uh, for us to move there for a while and spend time there, and in doing so, yeah, we, we became, <laughs> we became the, I became maybe the 81st uh, citizen of Guzman for a short time, and the family was included in that, uh, but it was wonderful. We had two little children at the time. Um, a third came later, but uh, the the kids had like you know eighty grandparents in this village, and <laughs> and um, and you'd take a little walk in the morning, and all the sheep would come up through town. And I remember our oldest son Leo one day wearing his uh, Yankees batting helmet, um, standing there in a cloud of sheep, and he just had no idea what was happening. <laughs> he looked absolutely astonished, and. Um, you know, bewildered and delighted and, and a little bit frightened. And I think that's sort of why you travel, why you put yourself in a new context to find all of those emotions uh, again. Was it hard to leave? Uh, it was hard for me to leave. Yeah, I did. I had this, I did, my fantasy ran a little bit more uh, <laughs> intensely maybe than my wife. <laughs> um, she was totally game and a, a great sport, but we left in September before the real winter came. And winter up there can be brutal. And as they say about Castile, it's, um, you know, it is, it's, it's nine months of winter followed by three months of hell. Um, so it's a very hard place to live, especially with little kids. And, and there's nothing by way of diversion. Uh, you know, there's no local, um, whatever, you know, gym or swimming pool. Um, I mean, these, these, there's nothing in Guzman like that. Um, so you, in the winter, are very isolated, and that didn't make a whole lot of sense for our family. And at the same time, too, my wife um, is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, and she also just had to get back to work. So um, our time ran out there. But I, I did. I, I very much had this fantasy of us living there longer and... and um, could have seen it, but uh, practically speaking, you know that might have that might have um, been the undoing <laughs> of, of us if we we'd really stuck it out. Because I think um, others before us have, had tried, and, and a lot of people just don't make it through the winter. Talk about tasting the cheese finally. Yeah, well, so in all of this, there was one tin that Ambrosio had kept from from the uh, from the old days. And he had put it down in the cave, and he said he was never going to open this this last tin of cheese. And this this cheese was again um, from milk that came from sheep that grazed in, in the nearby fields. When when the cheese uh, was taken from him, it was moved across uh, the fields to to a little factory in this nearby village. And according to Ambrosio, they bought their milk, um, you know, on market. They weren't they weren't using local milk anymore, and so the the product was bastardized. But his original cheese uh, had there was this one tin left. And when we went to leave at the end of our time there in 2003, he invited us up to uh, the telling room to um, for a merienda just for for a meal. And he'd invited a number of his fre- uh, farmer friends and shepherds um, who came. And so there was a lot of wine being drunk, and they were serving sheep ears. Uh, and I was 
you know, very much trying to be one of them. So I, I was given a plate full of sheep ears and, and struggled through um, two or three of them, uh, after which, of course, they ladled like four more <laughs> on the plate. And they were very uh, difficult to eat. They're not, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, I found my gag reflex working overtime. Uh, and so I, I just had to get out. The telling room gets very, gets very crowded when it's full like that and it echoes with voices. And so I, I got out. I took our daughter outside for a little bit. And when I came back in, Ambrosio had his back to the door. And my wife Sarah motioned for me to come over. And he had, uh, in my absence, gone down and taken the last tin and brought it up. He set it over a flame. And, um, and he heated it up. He opened the, the top of the tin and heated the cheese in its olive oil. So the olive oil was bubbling, the cheese was sweating. And uh, eventually he cut a piece and another and handed them to to my wife and myself. And the gesture was so overwhelming uh, in some ways that I I couldn't accurately describe what I was eating. I mean, I, I could taste the buttercream and the chamomile and I could taste I could taste the fields and it was nutty but it had this sweetness it was overwhelmingly um, strong it was just like ambrosio himself it was just an overpowering cheese you just you couldn't eat much more than a piece of it truly um, and as we ate that piece of cheese ambrosio cut out some more pieces of cheese and put it on the table and the men who were by this time, uh, drunk and you know, telling, telling their jokes, um, they just thought thoughtlessly and carelessly, uh, you know, gobbled up this cheese. And meanwhile, for me, it was this religious moment. Ambrosio was basically um, putting the end on this little fairy tale that I had invented for myself. He had told me the legend of the cheese, and he had written the ending for me. Um, the problem was it really wasn't the ending, and what happened afterwards was that you know I had to take the narrative back. I had to, I actually had to um, find out the truth, and the, and so what ensued was a bit of a narrative battle between myself and Ambrosio. He had he had delivered this beautiful legend uh, of this cheese made in the most pure possible way, um, but there was another side, of course, as there always is. Michael Paternetti. The book is The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, It was a delight to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 